Greetings, friends and colleagues. Welcome to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, the professional educator's thought partner, a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. I am Scott Lee. In this episode, we'll listen to a conversation I had recently with Caroline Mickey about her experiences following the cancellation of a Mother's Day lesson she planned. The lesson was canceled following an organized campaign that misrepresented lesson content. Caroline is an elementary school librarian holding master's degrees in English literature and information science. She's been awarded Librarian of the Month twice by the Southeast Region of the Tennessee Association of School Librarians, and she's a big advocate for students' rights in reading. I'd also like to note that we recorded our conversation in person and outdoors. There are a couple of places where I was not able to edit out a nearby dog barking. Welcome to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, Caroline. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Could you tell us a little bit about your current role and why did you choose to become a librarian in the first place? I am an elementary school librarian. I work at a, at a K-5 school, and this answer is really cheesy. I became a librarian because of my husband. I was working at a trucking company, and I wasn't happy. And my husband said, well, if we just had the money and you didn't have to work, what would you be doing? And I said, well, I would probably go and volunteer at the library. Books have always been my happy place, and I love putting them in order. I think it just presses that serotonin button in my ADHD brain. He said, okay, well, then you should go do that. And I said, quit my job and go volunteer at the library. And he said, no, like, you should go be a librarian. And so we sort of looked around and realized that we could afford to do it with the help of some family members. I chose to get certified to be an elementary school librarian because something that they tell you a lot in school is be ready to move because there's not always a lot of library jobs available. I knew that I was going to have to be as employable as possible. So if I had just gone as a public librarian, then I would have had to go back to get certified to teach in schools, whereas if I went for schools, then I could easily transition to public librarian. And then I interviewed at my school and I got the job. And I was very nervous about it. And it turned out I was really good at it, which was surprising because I never thought I would be somebody who had a career. I was just going to go to work and then I was going to go home. And it turns out like I love being silly. I love reading picture books. I love matching kids to the right to the right book at the right time. And I just like getting kids excited about reading because, you know, elementary school, that's when you do it. That's when you plant the seed of reading for pleasure. You mentioned matching uh, the right kid with the right book. Yeah. That kind of maybe caused a little bit of trouble. You got involved in a controversy uh, last school year. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, uh, this is the fall of 2023. So this would have been in the spring of 2023. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah. In, in May, when we're sort of wrapping up the school year, Mother's Day is right there, so it's kind of built in for educators to do a Mother's Day lesson or a Mother's Day project. If not a lesson, then, you know, they'll read a book and then you make a thing for your mom. And one thing that I really think about a lot is, okay, but who's being left out? Any educator who 
knows, their students know that not every kid has a mom. There might be a kid whose mom passed away, a kid whose mom left, a kid who's being raised by a stepmom or a grandparent. And especially in the last several years, ever since marriage equality happened, finally, there are students who have two dads, two moms, whatever. And so I was trying to think, okay, how can we talk about the role that moms have without talking only about moms? So I chose to do a lesson where the learning objective was not everyone has a mom, but everyone has someone who loves them in a motherly way. And I have this book called Stella Brings the Family, which is about a girl who they're getting ready to have a Mother's Day celebration at her school and she doesn't have anybody to bring with her because she has two dads and it causes her an incredible amount of anxiety. She can't pay attention when she's at recess. She has trouble doing her schoolwork. She doesn't have an appetite and her classmates have questions. They, they say things like, you know, well, who tucks you in to bed at night and who makes your lunches? Who kisses you when you get hurt? And she has answers for all those questions. But it's her aunt or her Uncle Bruno, which I like really wanted to do something with. Uncle Bruno is a big thing right now. It was, especially in May. And then I was like, okay, like that can be kind of a heavy story of like talking about all the roles that moms have. So what do I have that will sort of make that fun as well? So I typed in mother into my catalog and the first thing that popped up was Mother Bruce. And I was like, done. Mother Bruce is hilarious it fits the theme because it's an adoption story. And I was like, cool. My district has a policy that if you're going to do anything that could be considered controversial, that you had to give uh, parents the option to opt out. And I know where I am. I'm in Southern Tennessee. I read the news. And so I said, I have a story that has two dads in it. We're talking about mothers. And that can be for reasons unrelated to two dads talking about mothers can be triggering for especially young kids who have lost their mom or don't have that person and so Mm -hmm. it was for that reason and for the two dads and Stella that we sent the note home and then that note got handed off to uh, a local now at the time they were not but a local hate group and they posted it along with my work email on their Facebook page. And it kind of took off from there. And it resulted in the lesson being canceled. <clears throat> and did any parent actually complain? I, no. Well, complain, no. I had, to, to me, no. I had emails from parents who opted out of the lesson, which okay. was the point. Which is the, which, and, which is the policy, yes, anyway. which was the point. And then sort of once it was posted and kind of gained traction with a certain crowd, it kind of took off from there. I still don't know the full extent of everything because my front office staff are the people who were fielding the calls. And they didn't slash won't tell me how many people called in support or against um, the things that were said about me and all of that. So I I don't know exactly how high the controversy got because I was sort of protected from it. And so like a lot of the complaints were about Stella and the other one was the one that surprised me was the one of Mother Bruce because I picked that one because it's fun. What I was accused of doing was putting men in the role of mothers because Stella has two dads and 
Bruce is a male bear. So that was one. And then the other one was I was pushing, pushing a trans agenda with Mother Bruce because at one point it talks about how when the goslings in this book hatch, they see Bruce and they assume that he is their mother because whenever birds hatch, whatever they see first is their mom. And the line in the book is, even if she is a he and he is a bear. And it really threw me because, okay, the people who are accusing me of this clearly don't understand what being trans means because Bruce does not try to portray himself as female. He does not try to gender himself as female. And so somebody who's creating something out of nothing um, and just finding a reason to be upset as opposed to having a legitimate reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was really surprised when I heard about that originally because I don't know the Stella book, but I do know Mother Bruce. It's a it's a fun book. It's I, hilarious. My my wife and I both have read it to our grandkids. Yeah. I've got the book at home. Uh, and Which is why I picked it. It's well known. The kids knew. I mean, the kids would know what they were getting into. I've read it before. The, the bear looks up gourmet recipes on the internet, <laughs> which alone is hilarious. He finds the, the, the geese eggs and then realizes he's missing ingredients. When he comes back, they've hatched and he like tries to get rid of them, but they follow him back home. And then he raises them, which is like this incredible adoption story of like, yes, like he's doing it to try to get them to, to leave, but he also could just not. So, like, he makes sure that they eat, and he teaches them how to fly, and they have this really great, like, photo spread of where they go from geese to, like, angsty teenage geese, <laughs> which I love so much. And then when he tries to get them to fly, and they're like, no, like, we're not going to migrate. That's not who we are. Then he goes with them. It's this sort of this wonderful, like, begrudging parenthood that I just thought would be really funny to talk about. Maybe your mom isn't happy all the time with the choices that you make, but she still makes sure that you eat and she still makes sure that you are ready for gymnastics practice. And she still makes sure that you are ready for school in the morning. Like I, I just, it was going to be such a fun conversation to talk about the amount of work that moms do for people and the amount of people, like with Stella, like she ends up bringing five or six people to her Mother's Day party. And that was going to be the thing. Like it took six people for one mom. But yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Support for the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is provided by study.com offering a wide range of learning experiences and test preparation services, including SAT, ACT, and Praxis, among many others. Listeners receive a 30% discount off their first three months of any study.com subscription by using the promo code THOUGHTFUL. That's T-H-O-U-G-H-T-F-U-L. Using this code supports this podcast, so please feel free to share with colleagues, students, or friends. Again, that coupon code is THOUGHTFUL for 30% off your first three months at study.com. Yeah, it just still amazes me thinking about all of it. And having worked with kids in foster care, yeah. working with you know, 
kids that we knew mm -hmm. didn't have traditional families and traditional right. homes. We could do a whole nother podcast episode on multi-generational families or right. non-nuclear families. I mean, that's um, where I came from. And, yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a mom, a dad, and a stepdad. And even depending on how clear that people want to get with that traditional family definition, I technically don't even fit that because my husband and I, he stays at, he's a stay-at-home dad and I work. So even that's not a traditional family model, depending on how far you want to go back. But even then, that idea of a nuclear family was like a ten a ten year span in the fifties. Like yeah. it's not even like a real, a real. Yeah, a sociologist that I know pointed out very clearly and and had this timeline when the nuclear family started, and it was something like eighteen eighty, and yeah. it coincided with. Sears and Montgomery Ward doing mail order catalogs. They oh, realized, yeah. and of course, this is not the only thing, but they realized, oh, hey, in rural areas where you've got grandparents living next door to parents raising kids, there's several homes where people are related. Oh, we can sell whatever it is we want to sell to each of these addresses. And that much of that starts in that period. For folks that listen to this podcast a lot, check out the Larry Brentro. And we talk about indigenous family structures. Oh, I just finished a really great book about that. Oh, what's the book? It's, it's, a, it's actually a second in a series, but it's called Heroes of the Water Monster. And it's by Brian Young, who is uh, a Navajo writer. I think he's a, a documentary filmmaker as well. He says the Diné I think is, is the correct pronunciation. And he tells the story of the ancestors and how they were removed from their, from their land and how the, the soldiers tried to separate families because of the Western idea of once you don't have your family, you're kind of unmoored. But they didn't really grasp that this was a clan. And so for a lot of the adults who lost their children and a lot of the children who became orphans, they were able to form new family groups because they were of the same clan that was sort of key to the survival of their culture and their stories and their language. And, oh, so beautiful. Each of the chapters were pronounced in Diné language. And I, I listened to it and it was, oh, it was so good. It makes me want to read. The first one is called Healer of the Water Monster. And so this one is the second one. Just in time for Indigenous People's Day. This really beautiful Indigenous middle grades novel. And we do <laughs> happen to be recording the day after Indigenous People's Day. Back to the topic at hand, obviously we're not going to discuss specific personnel issues beyond to say that you did not lose your job or, did anything, nope. or anything like that over it this. Didn't. This story did become public. We're not going to rehash news stories, but there is a link on uh, the Thoughtful Teacher podcast to a story that you did with NPRs here and now. For context, a couple of things that happened is that there were a small number of complaints, mm -hmm. but a large amount of support. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what those numbers were and kind of what happened? Obviously, round numbers. Yeah. Um, I would say probably for every negative thing I received, I, I received somewhere between five and ten positive things. And that those were as small as a parent and, and Carline saying, oh, they're full of crap. 
I didn't say crap, but you're, they're full of crap, yeah. Miss Mickey. That's okay. We, yeah. can, <laughs> say, we can say crap. Um, there, um, there's, an, there's another word, a similar word that we can't say. Or it was little things like that. Just people saying like, we support you. There was somebody on the street to my school that says we, we support our librarian. And they didn't even have students. They were just people in the community who were following the story. I got emails from all over the country from people who were being supportive of people who said the work that I was doing was important, that had they experienced a Mother's Day lesson like that when they were in school, it would have helped immensely because their mom left at at an age, and so they were always sort of set twiddling their thumbs creating Mother's Day projects. I had another person who was actually a graduate of my school system who said that they were raised Southern Baptist, and they were also... LGBTQIA plus and they grew up with a very intense hatred of themselves and it's something they've been working on as an adult and that they were so grateful that there were educators like me who were trying to just show that having two dads is normal because it is and it it was a lot of really wonderful powerful things like that there's a, a local organization in Chattanooga called the Chattanooga Moms for Social Justice And they started a change.org petition. I think it got up to 1,700 signatures, I think, was where it stopped to have the lesson reinstated. There were four people who went and spoke at the school board meeting that happened the following week after the lesson was canceled. Three of the four who spoke in support of the lesson were parents from my school. I had a student send me an email They had watched their parent speak at the school board meeting and they wrote their own speech as if they were going to speak before the school board. And in it, they said that they couldn't imagine my school without me there and that I was the reason that they love to read because I took the time to figure out what they wanted to read. And If I talk too much more about it, I'll cry. I've cried pretty much every time I talk about it. I mean, that's what you want, right, as a Mm -hmm. teacher. Like, that's what you want as an educator. I don't feel like I did anything special with that student. They told me what they wanted, and I took my professional knowledge and said, okay, well, have you looked at this or have you looked at this? And I handed them the book, and I had their parents come to me and say, like, I really need you to know that they like to read now because of you, full stop. We tried. We did everything that that we could but it it was you. And so just to know that that speech, I have a copy of it. That's something I'm going to carry forever. I had people from Maine, people from California, people from Kentucky, people from Florida telling me all of these incredible, beautiful stories that they shared with me uh, about this lesson. It was very surreal to know that I teach, my school is is small. I teach 300-ish students every year. And to know that I was going to read these two books about how people have motherly figures and it, and it touched this many people. It was really, at first it was very disheartening to experience that kind of attention. And then once sort of all of these beautiful letters and messages of support started pouring in, it reminded me why I, I do what I do just to, because books, books have that power and I just, I love that. Don't get me talking too much about it. I could talk forever about mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors and the power of literature. (laughs) (laughs) Two things I'm curious about. 
first off, has this changed your thought process or your decision-making process? And also for other educators out there, what advice would you offer when they're thinking about some kind of content that might be controversial? I, I don't think I've personally changed. I know that uh, policies have sort of been changing around me, not necessarily distinctly because of what happened, but just sort of the state of Tennessee right now. I don't think that I've done anything that changed because the books are still in the library. They just might not be a part of a lesson now, but I still have them. That sort of leads into my advice is just follow the policy because that's what I did. I, I followed the policy. I did everything I was supposed to do. And, you know, unfortunately, it didn't go the way that I wanted. But that's also part of the reason why I still have my job is because I did what I was supposed to do. I did my due diligence. I let people know. I gave them the option to opt out. I listed what I was going to be reading. And I gave what I thought was the appropriate amount of time, which at the time was what was in the policy, an appropriate amount of time, I think was the exact words. It's now been changed to, a, I think, two weeks now. It says in the policy, two weeks. So personally, no, I haven't changed. I'm definitely a little bit more cynical now about the community that I live in, which is, I think, something that happens just with age in general, but also just going through being on the national stage. When it comes to anything that you're worried that might be controversial, is like make sure that it has educational value and follow the policy. Because if you do those two things... If everybody else follows the rules, then you should be fine. It does open a can of worms. Do you ever worry that that policies like this are going to just make it easier? I mean, I think about it when I was a middle and high school social studies teacher. Sometimes I might be within that two-week window on a potentially controversial issue or content and having been a social studies teacher controversial content is part of the job a very very vague description as well do you worry in general that that is going to keep people is that going to silence teachers and when and, and of course and not talking about these things probably is not good for students right when it comes to classroom teachers they have the the added protection of the curriculum being available. So at any point, they can say, this is the curriculum. This is what we will be studying. When it comes to especially like related art stuff, we don't have a set curriculum. Librarians have standards created by the American Association of School Librarians, and we try to align those as best we can with state standards. And we have the skills that we want to teach. Libraries sort of exist outside of that classroom curriculum dynamic. With classroom teachers, they sort of have that added protection. But I worry all the time about the direction that policies seem to be be going when they pass the age appropriateness bill and in all of its very vague language. It's It's all couched in protecting children. But the the books that are being singled out because of these laws and policies, I think really tell the truth of what people are trying to do. Because when you say that a book that has LGBTQIA plus characters 
when you say is inappropriate or when you when you say that a book that is written by a BIPOC author or is about a BIPOC character and you're saying that it's it's explicit, it's inappropriate, it's pornographic is a word that is thrown around a lot. What you were saying about that experience is that it's not a valid experience. It needs to be pushed aside. It's not it's not appropriate to learn about. So therefore, it is not appropriate to know about where, in fact, these people exist. Their stories exist. They're being silenced. They're trying to tell their stories and they're trying to say this is what's happening. And people are saying, well, that's inappropriate. It's not inappropriate. It's reality. And the the conversation always comes back to, especially with LGBTQIA plus books, is that kids don't need to be learning about sex. <laughs> and a, a book like Stella Brings the Family, everyone is fully clothed the whole time. And it's said that the kids don't need to be learning about this because they're too young. I've been married all eight years that I have been an elementary school librarian. I have been pregnant twice. And it was never an issue. Uh, you know, I talk about my husband all the time. I talk about my kids all the time. If the problem is that I say, if I were to say my wife instead of my husband, then the issue is not who I choose to spend my personal time with. The issue is that you're uncomfortable talking to somebody else or that you think that this kind of quote unquote lifestyle, not a lifestyle, is wrong. I veered off. <laughs> I do that. The the policies they're they're very targeted and they're trying to not be targeted because these people don't want to be called homophobic. They don't want to be called transphobic. And so they always bring it back to, you know, you're a pervert, you're a pedophile. They use all of these very harsh words and the words that they use are very intentional. They use the word child when the majority of these books are for young adults. They're for teenagers, for 15, 16, 17 teens on the cusp of being adults who are fully capable of understanding, who are trying to learn who they are in the world. But they use the word child because then you think of a six-year-old or seven-year-old. What do you think about the role of educator professional organizations? I'm thinking both unions, but also professional organizations. What do you see as their role in helping support educators like you who have potentially run into problems in the community. What do you see as their role? Do you think they're doing a good enough job? I think or where are we at? I think that's it's it's sort of multifaceted. So at the at the very base of it, it's just support. Our the HCEA rep for my area, he reached out and, to and me. And that's the local That's the local one, yeah. The National Education Association. Right. Yeah. And so when he reached out to me almost immediately and said, you know, how are you doing? I can come in and talk with you. He was the first one to ask me, did you clear this with your principal? I said, yes. He said, then you're fine. He said, everything else is just going to be a lot of, a lot of talk. But if at any point you were called into a meeting that you feel is any way going to be disciplinary, call me. So I think at their very base, it's just support. And so I'm a member of ALA and the Tennessee Library Association. I'm a member of the American Association of School Librarians and its state affiliate, Tennessee Association of School Librarians. 
for me, it was mostly just emotional and moral support. I had people reaching out to me, asking how I was doing, if I needed anything, if you need something like we can connect you to resources that you need. If this becomes an official complaint, turn it in to the American Library Association so they can track book bans and, and book challenges. I think a lot of those organizations are doing the best that they can because especially Tennessee Association of School Librarians or TASSEL, it's entirely volunteer run. Every single person who is a part of that organization is also a school librarian and they have a, a full-time job. I don't exactly know how that works for like the, the National Education Association and, and the one for, for my county as well, but they still take the time. And they're the ones who are showing up. I go to all the school board meetings now, and they're there as well to speak up, to talk about the memorandum of understanding with our district. They're the ones who are showing up, and they're trying to get people involved. I think it's hard, in, especially in the South, because people hear the word union, and they tend to sort of back away from it. It's sort of been ingrained in us, right, to not trust unions. Uh, because we're not taught that unions are responsible for the five-day work week and for weekends and for the 40-hour work week and no chi- and child labor laws. And we, we're not taught that, which is a whole other conversation. I think they're doing the best that they can, especially with more and more sort of rules and regulations coming their way. And teachers don't make a whole lot of money. So I think to be a member of my professional organization – it's expensive. And so that's hard to like look at that number and say, okay, is it worth it? But my answer to that question is always going to be yes. Because regardless of what you're doing, if you're a preschool art teacher all the way up to a 12th grade science teacher, you need your people. And because I had my people in a variety of places – I had people to turn to when it became overwhelming. It's interesting to me that you're discussing advocacy and professional advocacy with a self-care component to it, because we don't always discuss that when we talk about advocacy, Mm -hmm. a topic we have on this podcast a lot, and yet we've never discussed advocacy in terms of self-care and and professional care for others in the profession. Yeah, I had a, a sort of kismet. I had a meeting with my therapist sort of when when things were kind of at their height. I just happened. She was like, so how are you doing? And I'm like, you're about to earn it today. So I was telling her everything that had happened and how the lesson had been canceled and how I felt like I lost and these terrible people won and they got what they wanted. And I just I just felt so terrible. And she said, do you think that Rosa Parks, when she got arrested, felt that she had won? And in no way am I comparing myself to the incredible things that sparked after Rosa Parks chose to to sit. But it was a very good reminder of, okay, yes, my lesson was canceled. That's a loss. But now all these people are talking about it. Completely independent of me, it was on The View. (laughs) I mean, I, I spoke to the Washington Post. I had an interview with them. But The View picked it up. They didn't say my name. They said my school. And then they gave everybody in the audience Mother Bruce and Stella Brings the Family. And wow. one of the, oh gosh, I can't remember her name. 
but one of the one of the women on the view called what this group was doing a paper genocide because of the books that they were targeting and i was like okay all i did was want to read a story about a girl with two dads on mother's day and now i have somebody on a national stage hearing the words paper genocide and what's happening and so after that, I was able to sort of calm down a little bit. My therapist said to me, when you have these big civil rights things that are happening, they don't happen all at once. It happens a chip at a time. You're breaking down the wall a chip at a time. And she said, just don't, just don't break your hammer. And I told her later that that's been like my, my rallying cry basically now when I talk to other librarians about, about doing this work. And she goes, I don't even remember saying that. And I was like, do you realize how good of a therapist you are that you give me like this life changing advice and you don't even remember saying it? Like, <laughs> but yeah, so that's been my new thing is like, don't break your hammer. You can only care about so many things in a day. And so maybe today you care about your advocacy. Maybe tomorrow you care about that you eat a really good dinner. Mm-hmm. And so finding that balance of it doesn't have to be all the things all the time, because especially as educators, we really tend to pick up a lot of baggage that other people drop. And it can be hard to put that down and remember that we're worthy of care. Any other advice or what kind of resources would you suggest for somebody who finds themselves in a similar situation? Remember that a lot of the hate comes from a small, very, very loud minority that has very good marketing. That was something that I sort of kept going back to because I did the thing you're not supposed to do. I went and read the comments. But a lot of those comments were positive. It was a lot of people who were defending, a lot of people who were standing up for the lesson, for me, for minority groups in general. And go to your school board meetings. I, I can verify that they are not the most riveting way to spend an evening But I'm also much more aware of what's happening in my district. And I'm starting to get recognized because I'm there. It's unfortunate that the accessibility to some meetings isn't great, especially for public educators. But in being physically present, I am now in the room. I'm not at the table, but I'm in the room. And whenever I go to some sort of event that is in any way school related I look for the people in charge so like if the superintendent's there I go up and I say thank you for being here I don't introduce myself I don't make it about me I just say thank you for being here I appreciate it and I'll do that if the school board members are there if the principals are there the county commissioners anybody who's there that is making those decisions any chance that you can get to remind them that what they do affects what you're trying to do in your building. So their decisions, they just sort of get to make them and then go home. Whereas teachers, we're the ones that are holding the buildings up. We're the ones that are making what we can out of what other people decide. And so going to your school board meetings, being known to your to your school board, being known to your county commissioners, just being known. I mean, that was something that I was told a lot when I was in library school was make sure that you're known, show up to the PTA meetings, let people know what you're doing. Because if, if you don't tell the story, somebody else is going to tell the story and they're going to get it wrong. Even with the best intentions, they're going to get it wrong because especially school librarians, we're the only ones in the building. 
there might be two or three second grade teachers. There might be like 15 kindergartens, but there's still only one school librarian. Maybe they have uh, an assistant to help, but we're sort of solo people. And so we know what we're talking about because we experience it. Yeah. So just say stuff, but also just be comfortable in knowing that like showing up to work is advocacy in itself. There's a librarian in Georgia, Cicely Lewis. She's the founder of the Read Woke Challenge. And somebody was asking her, you know, like, why are you out marching in the streets? And she said, because I'm 40 and I'm tired. But also my existence is, is a protest. The fact that I am continuing to teach after I received all this backlash, like that in itself feels like a protest, that I still show up, that I still do interviews, that I still talk about it. That alone feels like a protest. I'm also on Instagram. <laughs> where I, I post randomly I'll post things re related to school yesterday I, I posted Heroes of the Water Monster as a book recommendation so if you want random memes and elementary school things you can follow me on at hey library teacher on Instagram because <laughs> that's what kids call me anyway so now I used to get really annoyed when people would say hey library teacher but now every time I hear it I'm like I made the right choice <laughs> <laughs> that one's really fun and then pretty much the, any advice that I've ever gotten on, on being more aware is, you know, follow writers of color, follow LGBTQIA plus authors, read the books. Everything that I think I, I've ever learned, ranging from how to appropriately talk about the trans experience when it is not mine, to how to help neurodivergent people to the history of indigenous cultures, I've learned from books, from fiction books, from historical fiction books, from nonfiction books. Reading builds empathy. And I think that's one reason why people are so scared of it is because when you start to build empathy and you start to see people who are different from you as human beings, it becomes a lot more difficult to dehumanize them and it becomes a lot more difficult to take away the things that are their humanity because that's something that really drives me forward is that if I enjoy all of the freedoms that come with being a straight white cis married woman but I don't want those same freedoms for everyone else then what I'm enjoying is not freedom what I'm enjoying is privilege and I can't abide that thank you very much for joining us today on the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. Thank you. This was, it was a lot of fun. I had a good time. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is brought to you as a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. If you would like to learn more about how we partner with schools and youth organizations, strengthening learning cultures, and developing more resilient youth, please visit our website, www.oncoursesolutions.net. This has been Episode 11 of the 2023 season. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell your friends and colleagues about it in person and on social media. We also greatly appreciate positive reviews on your favorite podcast app. 
The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is a production of Encourse Education Solutions, LLC. Scott Lee, Executive Producer, in partnership with Chattanooga Podcast Studios. We encourage diverse opinions. However, opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of producer, partners, or underwriters. Guest was not compensated for appearance, nor did guest pay to appear. Episode notes, links, and transcripts are available at our website, www.thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Theme music is composed and performed by Audio Coffee. Please follow me on social media. My handle on Instagram and on Twitter is at Dr. R. Scott Lee. And on Mastodon, it's at Dr. R. Scott Lee at universedon.com. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.